Here is a box, a musical box, wound up and ready to play. Can you guess what is in it today? everybody hello to you all hello to everyone that's sitting in the bath right now hello bill and welcome welcome in to the award-winning it is an award-winning magazine and music show box 39 i really am bill lawrence and for the next hour please join me ian tallentire and adrian cohen as we're all live here in studio one at cone radio towers and I'm Ian Tallentire, and I won't forget Anton in the Media Hub. Hello, Anton. And in the week that the World Happiness Index revealed which is the happiest country in the world, and a new scientific report confirms that happiness makes you live longer, we ask, what is happiness? Where do you find it? And how can we make sure we have plenty of it? And as always, we are joined by Mr. Adrian Cohen, who will be here, hopefully, in Studio One, uh, with his musical choices and thoughts. Once uh, we can settle a slight difference in opinion over his fee for recent show appearances. And, of course, we have our live 16-piece house band, Ausgang Exit, who, let's be honest, in, they don't moan about their fee, do they? Which I think is very generous this year. You know, we've raised, a, what is it, 60%, isn't it, of their bus fare here? And a 50-50 split in the tea and biscuits uh, they eat in the studio. Hello, fellas. So, let's increase our happiness stash, warm our chat glands of pleasure, and rub warm, soothing oil on our musical swellings of contentment as we unlock our wonderful wall of radio sound and open our Box 39 Happiness Special. Sometimes it seems The more I ask for The less I receive The only true freedom Is freedom from the heart's desires And the only true happiness This way
Keith Richards and uh, Mick Jagger became childhood friends and classmates in 1950 in Dartford, Kent. The Jagger family moved to Wilmington five miles away in 1954. In the mid-1950s, Jagger formed a garage band with his friend Dick Taylor. The group mainly played material by Muddy Waters, Chuck Berry, Little Richard, Howling Wolf and Bo Diddley. Jagger met Richards again on the 7th of October 1961 on Platform 2 of Dartford Railway Station. The Chuck Berry and Muddy Waters records Jagger was carrying revealed a shared interest. A musical partnership began shortly afterwards. Richards and Taylor often met Jagger at his house. The meetings moved to Taylor's house in late 1961, where Alan Etherington and Bob Beckwith joined the trio. The quintet called themselves the Beatles. And until I get paid in full for my commentaries in shows 8, 9, 10, 11 and 12, Bill and Ian, this is the kind of musicology you're going to get. happy does he Ian? bursting with joy did you pay him uh, I, I thought you did oh come on bill he's doing four more songs tonight well we better pay him you know we've we got to keep him happy really haven't you can you do phone banking yeah i think i can come on get on with it then what is it precisely that's in the box Listening to our house band, there they are, the boys in the corner, house gang exit, and they're playing home counties, flyovers, and bypasses. And uh, are you feeling happy? Are you? Because I am. Now, in a while, I should be asking him where the happiest places are. But do you know? First, I ask him to investigate. Is there, a, is there a key to being happy? If there's a way we can be sure to feel satisfaction, perhaps rather unsurprising, you know, research has shown that lottery winners are happier than lottery losers. But as most of us will always be, uh, because of very nature, unsuccessful in the lottery, I'm going to find out from Ian, is there another way to find contentment, serenity and joy? Ian, this is such a simple question, but I do suspect it's got a very complicated answer. Ian, what is happiness? Well... As per usual, Bill, I put on my science-based head and looked initially at the definition of happiness. I mean, as we all know, once you've done that, there's uh, less chance of wandering off the one and true path toward happiness itself. Well, I'd like you to share that definition. Come on. Okay. Well, happiness is quite simply the state of being happy. (laughs) Yes. Okay. I I know that bit. But, you know, what is being happy to me? I think it's much more complex than, what was that, five words you strung together, the state of being happy, isn't it? Well, and I would totally agree with you. I was going to go on and say that happiness is the feeling that comes over you when you know life is good and you can't help but smile. Happiness is a sense of well-being, joy and contentment. Yeah, so when would people feel happy then? Now, come on, Bill, that's a very leading question. I suspect, though, that happiness is triggered in people by very different things, whether that's feeling safe, feeling lucky or successful. I'd like to add some personal thoughts about it all later, and perhaps, if you're willing, Bill, we could uh, chat a bit about that and our own experiences, uh, not just of happiness in general, but our experiences in Indonesia, as I know the people's outlook on life there made us both reconsider 
how we should probably be approaching you know, our absolutely lives. Absolutely true, true. We've had some very good conversations about that, and I would like to come back. Yeah, but but uh, we'll have a go at that later. Anyway, when you initially asked what happiness was, yes, I really wanted to say the, the opposite <laughs> of sadness. Did you want to say that? Uh, can I just point out that was my line, and that's only four words, not the five I mentioned uh, earlier. Mystery and Talentai, you are quite simply. Overpredictable, which is understandable for a man of your age. Anyway, getting back to happiness, I feel you're missing the point. As you see, there's been no mention of pleasure, has there, or satisfaction, or cheerfulness, or gaiety, even felicity. Uh, that's not Felicity Kendall. Or jollity, or glee. Well, happiness might be Felicity Kendall in your case. <laughs> but anyway, if I can stop you there, please. The point I have been trying to make is that happiness is not covered by a list of words. It is a state of being which we enter because of certain triggers. Yeah, well, do you know that's not what Gandhi thought? You know, Gandhi was the leader for independence, wasn't he, in India? He was just a great civil rights leader. He was known as the father of the nation of India. So we could say a man, you know, he does understand what makes people tick. Uh, He reckoned happiness is when uh, what you think, what you say and what you do are in harmony. Very good. I, To be quite honest, Bill, though I like that one, I prefer Abraham Lincoln's quote. I mean, Lincoln was a pretty great guy too, had quite an important influence on the world, as well as creating the economic system that made the US dominate the world. He preserved the Union, abolished slavery as well, so he could be seen as a very wise old man. He said, folks are usually about as happy as they make their minds up to be. An ageless quote, don't you reckon? Uh, yeah, it is, isn't it? But, you know, for me, it's a little bit trite, a little bit worn. Uh, let me think. I I prefer deep thinking. Well, you I? always did, didn't you? Yeah, I prefer deep thought. Um, there's Albert Camus, isn't there? Uh, the French philosopher. Um, he's a Nobel Prize winner. And his lifelong work, Albert Camus, was all about um, maintaining the strength and the power of the individual within a framework of a strong community, a community with strong moral principles. So, to be honest, he was the rock god of our Box 39 philosophy, wasn't he? He is indeed, yeah. Yeah, and he came up with this absolute corker, a cracker. He said, you will never be happy if you continue to search for what happiness consists of. You will never live if you're looking for the meaning of life. And, do you know, that just about nails it for me. And I think, to be quite honest, Mr Lawrence... On that note, you win. We just had lunch which was a very nice little jackfruit curry with a bottle of barley high beer. It's going to be very very much the tourists this afternoon. I've got my tourist hat on. Tourists, we we are outstanding tourists. And the roads are absolutely busy. Trying to cross a road in itself is a lifelong experience, or it certainly can be, because you need no point waiting for the traffic to cease to cross the road. It's a case of darting across. I think it's a, it's a very individualistic style of driving, for which uh, any uh, manual would probably just have the words, do what you think is best. 
and it works. It seems to be rather like a shoal of fish that, uh, for, for, for no reason at all, will duck and dive, but they don't crash into each other particularly. The range of shops is quite incredible, but very similar to Colchester, really. You, you get your car fixed, you get something to eat, uh, you get clothes and you get bits and pieces for your house and you get money in banks. Yet to see a Sue Rider shop, but uh, we're hoping. Do you recognize this voice? It's a younger version of Ox 39's special friend. This is the earliest known recording made by Lord David Price and his band, The Arguments in the Alternative, before they were sent down from university. It was on their debut album entitled Make It Payable to C.A.S.H., with Cash, ostensibly being an Australian friend of theirs, laid up in hospital. The tune is called I'm Happy, and the chorus tells us everything we need to know about the unstoppable, indefatigable, and usually untraceable Lord David. It says, But I won't let these things get me down, for I won't traipse around the place looking sour, and I'll continue to play around, because I'm happy. Nowadays, of course, Lord David Price and the arguments in the alternative are based on the Cayman Islands, and are the most sought-after group, not only by the local authorities, but also by agents acting on behalf of Vladimir Putin. Yes? Wait a minute. Are you going to be paying me royalties for playing this on the radio? Just listen to Bill. And listen to Ian as well.
Game of Squash is a cornerstone of the Commonwealth Games programme and at the Gold Coast 2018 Commonwealth Games, England were placed third on the medal table with one gold, two silvers and one bronze medal, including James Wilstrop taking home the men's singles title. James is one of England's greatest squash players and is known as the marksman after his accurate shot placement. His Team England debut was at the first Commonwealth Youth Games in Edinburgh in 2000. He then went on to win silver at Melbourne 2006 and Delhi 2010 and then silver and bronze Glasgow 2014. James represented Team England for the fifth time on the Gold Coast and won gold in the men's squash singles and bronze in the men's doubles. Recently, Ian met 35-year-old James Wilstrop for an exclusive chat for Box 39 about his record-breaking career in the unique and tough world of squash. Here is his report. I'm James Wilstrop. I'm a professional squash player based in Yorkshire. I live with Vanessa Atkinson, who was um, world number one in 2004 from Holland. Um, we've got two children. I'm 34 years old and I have been to world number one. And I won the Commonwealth Gold Medal this year as well, which was fabulous at my, the twilight of my career, I think you could probably describe it as. Um, so yeah, that's me in a few words, I think. You wrote a book yeah. quite some time ago. Yeah. A book I have a signed copy of somewhere, which you signed for my son at uh, Canary. No, at oh, the Millennium Dome, yeah, as I it was then, the O2. Yeah, yeah, of course, yeah, um, yeah. Oh, nice. And read it, very moving, oh, and yeah. quite informative about the yeah. hardships and the difficulties in yeah. being a tour player, okay. particularly. My, men my mental recollection is saying because you have a rather peculiar diet. Yeah, well, you did at the time. So, could you just a go over the dietary limitations that you put on yourself, yeah. and can you also sort of explain the some of the yeah. stress and the strains of the circuit? Yeah, I mean, I think it's only peculiar to other people. I mean, I don't find it peculiar, uh, and I, it was certainly not. A, it was not something that I was putting myself under to to experience. It was just the way I wanted to eat, really. Um, Go on, say the word. So yeah, well, I'm a veg I've been a vegetarian since oh, I don't know 2007, um, and it, yeah, a lot of people couldn't, can't, probably don't, didn't quite get it or understand it. And even now, it's sort of you know, can you be an athlete and a vegan or vegetarian? And um, you know, that's fine. But I, I, I just chose not, you know, chose to try not to have you know animal produce as part of what I do, and that's something that I try and do now. But I don't, um, I just try not to be too militant about it. I just try and do do what I can and eat, eat as well as I can whenever I can. And like everyone else, you know, we have um, busy lives and some days we can't eat as well as we want, blah, blah, blah. But um, yeah, that was, that was a, a part of the book that maybe at the time was a bit more, you know, worth mentioning than even now, because it's a bit more accepted, as you say. Peculiar is a word that some people would use. It's not a word that I would use, but people do think it's peculiar and you're right so maybe yeah, that's why I felt maybe it was worth addressing and people do ask me that question a lot when we come to places people will ask you what what do you eat and how do you keep yourself in great shape or in the best shape you can and um, yeah that was just 
something that I've tried. The reason that I mention it is yeah. quite simply because I know that when you travel in Europe yeah. and also in the States, yeah. it's not a dietary discipline which is overly accepted and overly yeah. acknowledged. Yeah. So that True. must add to the pressures of competition and variation yeah, in diet. Exactly, which is why I don't get too heavy on myself or militant about it. Um, I, try, I try not to, um, you know, obviously if you, if you go to France and you're stuck in a restaurant with, with his team or, um, you know, and you can't really speak the language or whatever it is, and they don't, not, they don't do a lot of vegetarian food in some parts of the world. So you, you just have to try and do what you can and it, yeah you're right absolutely it can be a little bit challenging but I think as time is going by those things are getting people are doing different things a lot of people are eating gluten-free or not eating meat or then low carbs and there's all sorts of stuff going around now and I think restaurants are getting very good at dealing with it and um, the world is getting a bit more open to it which is nice. I'd agree you occasionally get more than one option. <laughs> yeah nowadays yeah exactly and restaurants are good at uh, you know trying to adapt I think generally. Okay you say 34 you yeah. say the twilight of your career yeah where does squash take you beyond the end of the playing career? Yeah, I mean, I don't know is, is probably the answer. I mean, I, I love the game. I'd love to still be involved in some way, but there's an awful lot of other things in life that interest me, and I'm very lucky that I feel like I'm quite s stimulated in, in terms of writing, and I love drama, and I love, I've done some acting, and I'd love to write um, more extensively. And there's another world out there that a lot of maybe athletes probably don't have don't always have that option or want or need or desire to do that and I've got quite a desire to go and chase a few other things I'd love to, to try that but I'd also love to um, stick with the game in some respect whether I could do it specialise in it the way I have done over the last 20 years I'm not sure it's just you know either candle does burn a bit thin so is that what's the word there you know there's only so much gas in the tank for repeating you know so whether I can do eight hour days on a squash court as a squash coach I'm not sure but you know there's just there's only so much capacity for when you specialize so heavily in one thing but but um, I, I love I still love the game and I'd love to be involved certainly in some way I, I don't really know what that would be at the moment okay. hopefully someone will listen to this and <laughs> find something, I'll find a job somewhere. You never know. <laughs> Thank you very much for your time, sir. Thank you very much. Thank you. This is Else Can Exit, and uh, one of my favourites that makes me happy, the song called Walking Around Town in My Brand New Trainers. Great stuff there from uh, Henry and the Boys. Now, Ian, we did chat earlier, didn't we, about this definition of happiness and uh, somehow ended up throwing quotes at one another about happiness. Did that make you happy, Ian? Not particularly, well, Bill, no. Well, what was that then? Well, your final quote from Albert, Albert uh, Camus quite simply knocked my uh, previous quote um, into what I basically describe as the cocked hat that I'm wearing. 
You won. And frankly, Bill, I'm not a particularly good loser. So I see you are showing what happiness can be by displaying the opposite of it, aren't you? That's sadness. Yeah, something like that. Okay. Um, <laughs> is, is it all right if we get on with what <laughs> yeah, I found in my on. investigations come into on. happiness now, please? Come on, Will tell that me what you probably you're... <laughs> make me a little happier. <laughs> well, you never know. Yeah. Come on, what's your week of computer tap, tap, tapping come up with? Alcohol. Yeah, and well, I did notice all those empty bottles in your front garden. Only tonight. the normal week's allocation. So, so you're, what you're saying, really, isn't it? That alcohol is at the heart of happiness? Surely there's got to be more to it than that. Well, yes, of course, Bill. There is, as per usual, a lot more to it than that. But the Journal of uh, Gerontology published some research that concordant drinking couples reported decreased negative marital quality over time, and these were significantly greater among wives. What are you saying? Drinking with your partner brings you closer together? Well, actually, that is exactly what it's saying. And thinking about it, why wouldn't it be true? If you're spending more time with someone in a pleasant, relaxed atmosphere, whether talking or just being companionable, your sense of well-being will be enhanced and neither party is having those negative thoughts about being left alone at home while the other is out. There were plenty of sensible cop-outs in the article about drinking in moderation, uh, you know, the usual thing about high-volume drinking tending towards violence and marital relationship breakdown. So really, drink isn't the answer, is it? Well, it appears not. I would conclude that it's more about time spent together than the actual act of drinking. Yeah. Where am I going to find this happiness, though? Come on. Um, name for me the happiest nation. If it was me, I think I'd probably have a little guess on Denmark. You know, they've got great medical, social welfare systems. They use their oil and gas money well, and they're a marvellous use of pickled herring. <laughs> it might be all down to the pickled herrings, Bill. Not bad, not a bad guess at all. Denmark actually comes in third, uh, behind Finland and Norway, with Iceland fourth and Norway in ninth. And you're right, Bill, it is all to do with how little there is to worry about when it comes to educational opportunity, health, social welfare and job opportunity. Though it has been found that the pressures to succeed and achieve are leading to the use of the Nordic countries contributing to an uneven distribution of happiness. Well, if it's all so good, why would there be any unhappiness then? Well, surveys between 2012-2016 have actually shown that loneliness among 16 to 24-year-olds was greater than people in their grandparents' generation and that the number of people with depression increased by 20% in 10 years, with the increase in mental health issues being seen predominantly in young people, particularly young women. The Nordic youth are struggling with the expectation management, would you agree? Yeah, I'd say, but flip it. Is it the expectations of the youth in Nordic countries, of their perception of their society's expectations causing the problem? Does that make sense? Yeah, it certainly does. Now, so far you've told me that I need to drink alcohol with my partner. I need to live in a Nordic country and be genuinely happy and I'll live longer. But also, I want to know what things are actually a waste of time in my pursuit of happiness. What's not going to make any difference at all? What will make no difference, in fact, in well, my quest? Well, actually, you, you said something at the beginning about winning the, winning the lottery yeah, making you happy. Yeah, and actually, go on, go it on. won't. Winning the lottery will not make you happy. Go on. Well, the jury is out, with studies on the perceived levels of happiness, both for lottery winners and losers, being inconclusive. It seems, actually, if you're Swedish and win the lottery, you will be happier. But then again, you've already said that by being Swedish in the first place, you're likely to be happier anyway. That's true. So longer-term studies in non-Swedish countries show there is no change in our life satisfaction or happiness, 
And, the, and that is the conclusion of the study. So it's better to rely on non-monetary things like close relationships for health and happiness. That's my line. You claim not to have reached this yourself. Research or not, you know, some things are just obvious. This week's word is Quaker Watcher. Q U O C K E R W O D G E R. I'll give you three definitions and you have to decide which one is true. Here we go. Quaker Watcher. Does it mean an underarm delivery in cricket that does not reach the stumps at the far end? Quaker Watcher. Does it mean a wooden puppet controlled by strings? Quokka Does it mean a child used as a lookout or distraction by pickpockets? Which one is it? I'll give you five seconds. A Quokka is a wooden puppet controlled by strings. Box 39, The Wall of Radio Sound, with Bill Lawrence, Adrian Cohen and Ian Tallentire. is Mammy Galore singing It Ain't Necessary in 1966 and from this song we get some excellent advice on marital happiness. Apparently in order to be happy our spouses think the following things are not necessary. We don't have to one buy them no diamonds or two tear down no mountain or three throw our money in a fountain or four we don't have to dress up in splendor or five make the world surrender or six we don't have to be a big time spender or seven we don't have to try and fool them or eight to call them honey and nine we should note that they are willing to learn if we want to school them aside from that all we've got to do is give them some loving that's true and really in order to be happy everything else ain't necessary Don't have to tell and fool me 
dynasty What will I be Without a song or a dance What are we So I say thank you for the music For giving it to me Right then, I'm going to play you five famous songs from the 1980s. I'm going to play you just the first few moments of each one. See if you can guess the song. Here is number one. And here is number two. And here is number three. And here we have number four. And finally, number five. Here they are once more. One. Two. Three. Four. Five. Can you guess the song? Having listened to only those first few moments, answers coming up soon. Where whoever it was, I'm a fan. So I said thank you for the music, the songs I'm singing. Thanks for all the joy they're bringing. Who can live without it? I- <laughs> How unique is our community here in North East Essex? What really matters? How different is life really, wherever we live? Untuk keselamatan Anda, tetaplah berada di tempat duduk sampai kereta berhenti dengan sempurna. Terima kasih atas kepercayaan Anda menggunakan jasa layanan kereta api Indonesia. I'm heading north on a train from Yogyakarta to Solo. The journey will take me about an hour. The train's rattling through the countryside and it's been raining. There's been a heavy burst of rain, but with this humidity it's not surprising. We stopped at a suburb of Yogyakarta, but now it's non-stop through to Solo. As I pass the rice fields, they're a patchwork of smaller fields subdivided with the rice at different levels of production and growth. Along the edges are dotted bright yellow flowers, big blooms against the green of the banana leaves of the banana trees, bamboo, and occasionally the train is passing through a small village. Along the track from each small village runs a a small tarmac road, no wider than a car. And alongside the track is a telephone line and electricity line. As we rattle through these villages, of course there are level crossings and the uh, inevitable pile of motorbikes waiting for the train to pass face towards me as I face towards them. They're wearing Rainmax, plastic Rainmax, brightly coloured because of the showers of rain that we have had. I'm passing now small piles of wood gently cooking into charcoal 
I can see a, a little school I've passed by with children running right alongside the railway line. Motorbikes seem to be the most common form of transport around here. In fact, I can't imagine in many of these tiny little roads that run alongside the railway that you could get a, a car uh, along them. They're too narrow. Apart from the roofs made of corrugated iron, there are small red thin bricks of these walls and the red tiles overlapping each other ridged tiles on a very steep angle to let the rain that comes in vast torrents pour off as quickly as possible into wide drainage ditches to take the, the surge of water that can regularly appear for 10 minutes, 15, 20 minutes every day before the return of the, the very, very warm sun. Ladies and gentlemen, in a few minutes, Lodaya will arrive in Solo Balapan, the last destination station. Please prepare your belongings. We remind you to stay in your seat until the train stops. The basic mechanics of life can be seen in each village as we pass. At one end, at the edges, you'll see the refuse, the waste. Whether it's plastic, vast swathes of plastic, but more likely piles of the husks of coconuts. And then you've got the cemeteries uh, to the edge of the town, to the rice fields. You've got very small little workshops for maintaining uh, the motorbikes that are prevalent absolutely everywhere. You have the mosque, or maybe more than one. Small shops with banners and pictures on the banners, of, of, of canvas banners, with uh, pictures of fried chicken, rice, and at the edges, uh, the big wide fronds of banana plants. Thank you for using our services, and see you on the next trip. Nothing. Here's your ninepence. I'm not dead. Yeah. He says he's not dead. Yes, he is. I'm not. He isn't? Well, he will be soon. He's very ill. I'm getting better. No, you're not. You'll be stone dead in a moment. Oh, I can't take him like that. It's against regulations. I don't want to go with the car. Oh, don't be such a baby. I can't take him. I feel fine. Well, do us a favour. I can't. Well, can you hang around a couple of minutes? He won't be long. No, I've got to go to Robinson's. They've lost nine today. Well, when's your next run? Thursday. I think I'll go for a walk. You're not fooling anyone, you know. Look, please know something you can do. I feel happy. I feel happy. Ah, oh, thanks very much. Not at all. See you on Thursday. Right. Yeah. 
As Thomas Jefferson said, the care of human life and happiness, and not their destruction, is the first and only legitimate object of good government. We now have the knowledge to implement that approach. Much of it is found in the annual World Happiness Report and the Global Happiness Policy Report. Bring me down, can none? Bring me down, I said my love is too high. Bring me down, can none? Bring me down, I said... In Colchester had become a large garrison town and its leading industries were engineering, diesel engines being a speciality, clothing manufacture and rose growing. The population numbered approximately 52,000. Colchester was vulnerable to air attack owing to the vital role of these engineering industries in the war effort and due to its military importance as a garrison town. The town was also on the flight path for enemy bombers on their journeys to and from London, and this often led to stray or unused bombs being jettisoned onto the field surrounding the town. Colchester's proximity to the east coast also made it a likely target for invasion. The town was ringed by over 120 pillboxes and other defensive structures which formed part of the Colchester stop line set up to repel enemy invaders. Ron Sargent lived near the east coast, not far from Colchester during the war. Recently, he came into the Box 39 studio here at Cone Radio to talk about his long life in North East Essex. And in this, the third part of our conversation, he talked about the end of the war, rationing, his first forays into the world of work and his national service. My name is Ron. I've lived in Colchester and Essex for the best part of, what, 60 years? Was it frightening, the war? No, not to us, no. No. So as children, it was just part of life? Yeah. What else can you remember about uh, some of the towns and villages around where you grew up? I don't know much about Clacton at the time, but I've numbered numbered the incidents what happened at Clacton. I remember when the German aeroplanes come over and and dropped all these incendiary bombs on Clacton. What was Clacton like then? What did it look like? It was isolated because it was was all covered with army. Holland on sea and and, and Clacton was soldiers everywhere because there was all these big guns along the seafront. We used to watch them target practice with an aeroplane with a target behind. We would say every day there used to be an aeroplane going along between Holland-on-Sea and Clacton towing a red target because the soldiers were firing in with, with both guns. And sometimes you used to see these bits of, bits of material come down. And one day when I was at home, 
they'd hit the tongue wire and this whole lot came down and I thought, I see where it come down. I'd run down, run down to the on the marshes of Holland on Sea and I got it with a big pole and all this material. And took it home and I said to my dad, what are we going to do with that? I don't know, but he said, must have said something to the next door neighbour, which was the, uh, a gentleman look, who used to look after the horses. He said, if you don't want it, he said, my wife will make some nice curtains with that. Bright red. Yeah. Happy days are here again. The skies above are clear again. Let us sing a song of cheer again. Happy days are here again. And what about uh, things like rationing and food? What was oh, that? yes, like? yes. Yeah. Tell me about that. Well, that's one thing why I worked on the farm after school. If you worked on the farm doing these odd jobs except you've got extra rations tea sugar and some cheese and butter and of course that used to help my parents well help used to help my, the whole family so that's one thing you used to look forward to not much but that was something and uh, what did you know about hitler during the war as a, as a boy what did you think not he a lot didn't know much about it at all no can you remember the end of the war? What it was like when the war... No, I can't. The day I, that war all ended? I, all I can remember when we when we lived in this farmhouse between Clackland and Holland-on-Sea was when the soldiers first got into one of these concentration camps. And all I remember that was the Daily Mirror. My dad always had the Daily Mirror. And I'm sure you, if some of these, some of these, well, they were human skeletons. They were still alive, but they looked terrible. Always remember that what these soldiers found when they got into this concentration camp. Always remember that, yeah. I was 14 when I left school, yeah. Tell me about leaving school, what was that like? Well, I can't remember what, what the t- teachers said or anything. They gave a little farewell speech, I suppose. But all I remember is that I was asked to report to the job centre. And what I wanted to do was to learn carpentry, because I was always, always interested in this school teacher who took us for woodwork lessons, he used to make various things. And uh, I thought, oh, that's, that's a job for me. Well, eventually, I went to a firm, what I thought was going to be learning carpentry, but it turned out to be a piano and organ repairer firm, which I stopped there from when I was 14 years old until I was made to go in the army at 18, doing my national service. My, my colleague must have told, told him that I was due to go in the army within a matter of a few weeks of being there. And this, this vicar said, well, I hope you have a nice time in the army. I thought, yes, that's all right for you. I'm the one that's going, not you. Yeah. Tell me about your time in the army. Oh, yeah, well, that's when I realised that there are humans and other humans. Because I was made to go in the Coldstream Guards. And some of the NGOs, the drill instructors, well, they used to take that. They used to treat you, say you were criminals. And that's when I realised that... Uh, how other human beings can be so-and-so's. But what care I say I'll get by as long as I have you. 
So we've looked at definitions of happiness with some quotes and in the last section of the programme, some research around happiness and what may or may not influence it. And what we'd like to do next is to look at what we as individuals find happiness from. We've had a couple of weeks to think about this and we may well have cheated because as well as 14 days to reflect, we've also had the opportunity to talk to others about happiness how they perceive it, and how their feelings of happiness can be altered. Yeah, and we have tonight received a quick text, actually, from uh, Alison Chops from West Burkow, and she says, I don't need religion, faith, hedonism and bodily delights or materialistic possessions to be happy. I just need music, says Alison Chops. So, Ian, what gives, uh, what, what gives some examples of what makes you happy? Uh, sport, but... You know, we've spoken before and that's pretty much a given. It's well known that sporting activity releases not only adrenaline, but endorphins, happy chemicals um, that give us a sense of well-being, whether that's playing racket sports, swimming, cycling or running. They all help us to feel better, happier. So the guy who wrote that, uh, it's not the winning, but the taking part that counts. Was he right? Um, I still reckon he lost, but that's a personal (laughs) opinion. Um, But whatever, he was taking part in and... Regarding that, yeah, he's spot on. Definitely makes you happier. Now, any other areas you'd like to highlight that boost your happiness bags? Um, how about memory? Um, you'll have noticed playing in the background, there's a little bit of Thomas Tallis playing in the... Yeah, there we go. Thank you, Bill, for boosting that. Not exactly the most common piece of music, but something that makes me grin from ear to ear. Um, as a child, I sang in church and school choirs, earned my first pay packet, singing for the English National Opera Company when they were on tour. And bizarrely, English playing song, up to a point, does it for me. Living the moment of 50 or more voices without instrumental accompaniment, coming together as one, still makes me shiver. Does a memory, though, have to be sound, do you think? Uh, no, not for me. <laughs> I would say smell, taste, visual... All can have the same effect um, as the memory of sound. Smell for me would be tomatoes in a greenhouse in summer. That wonderful metallic aroma as you pick them and sort of slot one into your mouth. Taste would be a spoonful of baked Alaska, my favourite pudding when I was a kid. Uh, That combination of sweet sponge, raspberries, vanilla ice cream and soft meringue. I mean, absolutely wonderful. Thanks, Mum. Um, and visual would be being chased off the frozen lake by park rangers on the Mersey floodplain as a teenager. That thing of dicing with death, not getting very cold and wet and not getting caught. Very, very naughty, but so exhilarating. So come on, Bill. I've given you some of my memory triggers. What about you? Well, being a dad, you know, that's made me extraordinarily happy. Even though I would admit it's driven me to despair and back again via occasional rage, lots of confusion, but always big belly laughs. Well, I must admit, I would never have known it's driven you to distraction and back. I don't think you've ever (laughs) talked about that ever. So let's stop and think again about happiness. What is supposed to make us happy? Well, what others think should make us happy, what others want to make us happy. Yeah, that. That's the advertisers, isn't it? They would have us believe that a new car... Placing a winning bet, uh, holidays, new kitchen, bathroom, bedroom, or why not the whole hog? You know, 
a new house. That's going to make us happy. But will it? No, not a chance. Though, of course, we're being conned that it will, aren't we? Let's just think back, Ian. Come on. We went to Indonesia. The average wage there is about £20 a month. And that pays you rent. It pays for your loan for your moped. pays for your contract for your mobile phone. And it feeds you. Now, I can't remember a single person who wasn't smiling didn't want to engage with us you know they're all they couldn't speak english and are uh, but they just joined in they wanted to chat in a happy way even though our indonesian was you know poor wasn't it it certainly was and you're you're so right while we were traveling around the rural areas and the historic sites we were greeted with beaming smiles um, handshakes and, and what appeared to be a desire from those around us to share themselves it was simple, spontaneous, joyful, mm. a meeting of minds and cultures that led to smiles, laughter and happiness. Until the mall. Oh yes, well I remember it well. Our final night, wasn't it, in Indonesia. Our hosts, Adrian and his family, took us to eat in a food court in a high-end shopping mall. And the experience that we'd had up until that point was put into a really clear focus, wasn't it? Yeah, we stepped from a noisy, bustling, humid night into a shopping experience that was not only air-conditioned, but Western in its brands and outlook. It was everything the advertisers and government promoting continual growth would have us believe in. It was something the new middle classes wanted to be seen in and shopping, but it took us away from what had seemed so important and thrust us back into the have, have, have culture. Uh, where what you own outweighs what you are and what you have to give. It did not make me happy. Uh, and how did it make you feel, Bill? Well, the fish and chip supper was good. The ride home on the rickety bus was great fun too. So, what is the conclusion? What is happiness? How can we achieve it? Maybe making time for relationships, provide high quality and free education for our youth, Provide free healthcare. Create social welfare services that support and don't penalise. Create a society that cares for the Joneses, not about owning a car that is better than theirs. You know, Ian, I'm happy with that. This is If It Makes You Happy by Sheryl Crow, and we have every reason to believe that it did make her happy. It was the lead single from her 1996 eponymous album. The song peaked at number 10 on the Billboard Hot 100 chart in the US, and it won Best Female Rock Vocal Performance at the 1997 Grammy Awards. The song ties with her hit My Favourite Mistake 
as her third highest charting single in the UK, reaching number nine on the UK singles chart. It also peaked at number one in Canada and was her second number one hit on the Canadian Hot AC chart. Many reasons then for this American singer-songwriter and actress, born in 1962 in the unfashionable Missouri, to have been happy with her handiwork. happening here um, it seems that when Bill uh, went to do some internet banking with his phone he, he discovered that he and Ian hadn't been paid their fee and uh, I'm afraid while Cheryl Crow was singing uh, if it makes you happy uh, they have uh, they've gone they've gone home so uh, I'm going to have to to steer this program to its its end I've got the the script here so Bill now would have said, you have been listening to Box 39, the award-winning Thursday night community magazine program here on Cold Radio. Then Ian would have said, we have been Bill Lawrence, Ian Tallentire, and Adrian Cohen. Then Bill says, this has been a very special show examining happiness. And of course, we hope we have enlarged your happiness, leaving you, it says here, with gorgeous feelings of deep and glistening joy. Then Ian comes in, and our thanks to our 16-piece house band, Ausgang Exit, live and unleashed, and led, as always, by Henry. Then Bill says, we are always with you at mixloud.com slash box39. And then Ian, finally, and he always does this in this kind of misty-eyed way at the end. So from where we are, high up, on the top floor, Studio One, here at Colne Radio Towers, high above the full and fertile lands of North East Essex. It is time for us to close Box 39 once more, and then Ian says, be seeing you, and then Bill says, be seeing you. Be seeing you.